Ce style dauphin de la place Dauphine et la place blanche à mauvaise mine. Les camions sont pleins de lait, les balayeurs sont pleins de balais. Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille. Paris s'éveille. Welcome to episode 41 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we discuss all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. What's good with you today, Dermot? Everything is good with me today. <laughs> all right. We just got a shipment of chocolate, so... Excellent. I'll help we... you eat it. Yeah. I'm very excited to eat chocolate as well, because I am a human who likes <laughs> human food, like chocolate. All right, we've got lots of stuff to talk about today. All right, we've got a new post up on the Blooms and Barnacles blog. You can find that at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Dermot's going to tell us a little bit about the new post, starting with its title. Um, the, the new post is about metempsychosis. What's the title of the post? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a Met him pike hoses. <laughs> Yes. All right, what's it about? Metempsychosis is a, a $5 word for a reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And what's the post about? The post <laughs> is about Molly asking Leopold uh, over her strange little breakfast, of sad little breakfast of toast and tea, uh, what is metempsychosis? Mm-hmm. And he has sort of a slightly muddled idea mm-hmm. about what it is. Yeah, it, it becomes more complex over time. Mm. But in the... That passage in Calypso, she says, tell us in, I think it's tell us in plain words. Yes. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. Although we've written a lot about reincarnation already in Proteus, so this one might be a little bit different than just a straight post about reincarnation. Hmm. So if you feel like you know a lot about that topic already, check it out, because I think you'll learn some new things. And Dermot is our resident artist, so he did some art for that episode. Describe it in a way that piques their interest. Uh, it's a very elaborate, wide-angle bedroom shot. Uh, when Kelly described the scene to me, my heart sank, because I thought, there's no way I'm getting this one done in an hour. And uh, sure enough, I was right. So it's <laughs> a, a rather... Uh, messy bedroom and uh, I'm trying to you know capture capturing model means a lot of little details and things and there'd be no end to it but we, we even have a little commode in it with an out of order on the bottom right which is a tiny little touch mm-hmm. and we try to put in as much stuff as possible I forgot to put curtains on the window so there mm-hmm. you go you know no one's perfect um, we also have a, a, a tasteful piece of erotica hanging behind Mrs. Bloom's head mm-hmm. on the wall. You found that piece, uh, some little nymph, so I didn't have to draw that mm-hmm. and befall myself. And, uh, yeah, so her, all of her bloomers and things are lying on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and a chamber pot with actually correct Greek uh, tiling pattern on the side of it, too. Mm-hmm. We do all the details here. Dermot, can you tell us a little bit about the artwork for this episode? Yeah, it's uh, absinthe. And I remember the uh, Degas painting of the young woman and the bohemian fellow uh, sitting in front of their awful-looking green drinks uh, in a Parisian bar. So I thought, let's drop uh, our character into that and put some absinthe 
what are they called? Goblins or fairies or... Oh, they call the green fairy. The green fairy are doing a little kind of pagan dance around the empty absinthe bottle. So I'm looking at it now for the first time in months because I drew it quite a while ago. It's pretty nice. About a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the way that little fellows turn out. Yeah, nice job. Yeah, my hand made that. Yeah, and you kind of enhance the greenness of the the drinks in the original painting. That's right. Yes. Yeah. All right. So if you want to see that again, just go check out the episode notes for this on our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's blooms a n d barnacles.com. Next, I have a quick correction. In the previous episode, I think I referred to my book as the original text, which I think kind of implies that it's the original 1922 text. Ulysses has been corrected and updated a bunch of times, the most dramatic in 1984. My edition is the 1961 text, so it's the pre-Gabler text, but it's not the 1922 text for anyone keeping score at home. So, mea culpa, I guess. Okay, and finally we have a shout-out. We want to say thank you to our listener, Phil Holden. Uh, So he sent us a a donation and a nice message. Dermot's going to read that for you. Okay, so he writes, Hello, Kelly. Just want to say thank you. I'm new to your website. Love the podcasts. Hope this will help a little towards its maintenance. I'm a big Joyce fan. Uh, Signed, Phil Holden. And Phil, thank you so much. We Mm -hmm. absolutely appreciate it. You made Kelly's day. (laughs) <laughs> anytime someone is generous to blooms and barnacles mm-hmm. in any way makes my day yeah and if you can't send us cash then that's fine we know that's a hard times yep. uh, but promotion and helping plugging mm-hmm. and active on facebook it's great yep just send us a friendly email or twitter dm uh we can read that too so on to the text looking at the size of the text we've chosen to analyze this week and I'm predicting this will be roughly a nine-hour-long podcast. The text today, we are still in Proteus, the third episode of Ulysses, and this text comes from pages 42 to 43 from my edition, which is the Vintage International 1991 edition, which is the 1961 text, pre-Gabler, post-1922. Dermot is going to read these three paragraphs. Go for it, Dermot. His feet marched in sudden proud rhythm over the sand furrows, along by the boulders of the south wall. He stared at them proudly, piled stone mammoth skulls, gold light on sea, on sand, on boulders. The sun is there, the slender trees, the lemon houses. Paris rawly waking, crude sunlight on her lemon streets, moist pith of farls and bread, the frog-green wormwood, her matin incense, court the air. Beluomo rises from the bed of his wife's lover's wife. The kerchiefed housewife is astir, a saucer of ascetic acid in her hand. In Rodeau's, Yvonne and Madeleine new make their tumble beauties, shattering with gold teeth, chaussons of pastry, their mouths yellowed with the pus of Flambreton. Faces of Paris men go by, their well-pleased pleasers, curled conquistadors. Noon slumbers. Kevin Egan rolls gunpowder cigarettes through fingers smeared with printer's ink, sipping his green fairy as Patrice his white. About us, gobblers fork spiced beans down their gullets. Undemi Setier, a jet of coffee steam from the burnished cauldron. She serves me at his beck. Il est Irlandais. Hollandais? Non fromage. De Irlandais. Nous. Irlande. Vous savez à? Oui. She thought you wanted a cheese Hollandais. You're postprandial. Do you know that word? Postprandial. There was a fellow I knew once in Barcelona. Queer fellow. 
used to call it his postprandial, well, slodger. Around the slab tables, the tangle of wind breaths and gumbling gorges. His breath hangs over our sauce-stained plates, the green fairy's fang thrusting between his lips. Of Ireland, the Dalcassians, of hopes, conspiracies, of Arthur Griffith, now, A.E., Pimander, good shepherd of men, to yoke me as his yoke fellow, our crimes, our common cause. You're your father's son, I know the voice, his fustian shirt, sanguine flower, trembles at Spanish tassels at his secrets. M. Drumont, famous journalist. Drumont, know what he called Queen Victoria? Old hag with the yellow teeth. V.A. Ogress with a daunt jaune. Maud Gone, beautiful woman. La Patrie, M. Millevoy, Felix Foray, know how he died? Licentious men. The froken bonne tout fair who rubs male nakedness in the bath at Uppsala. Moi fair, she said, to les messieurs. Not this monsieur, I said, most licentious custom. Bath a most private thing. I wouldn't let my brother, not even my own brother, most lascivious thing. Green eyes, I see you. Fang, I feel. Lascivious people. All right, snaps. I can't snap my fingers very well. Very, very long paragraph. That, that's why this is going to be so long, because that last bit is all one paragraph. Okay. So I didn't want to break it up. Anyway, thoughts, Dermot? Jeez. <laughs> so he's getting out of his gourd with absinthe, or watching uh, Mr. Egan getting out of his mind on absinthe? What do you think? Again, everything runs on. So for somebody just hitting this for the first time, it would take a bit of parsing. Mm -hmm. uh, he's, I think he's definitely watching Egan and he's rolling gunpowder cigarettes. So he's smoking and drinking. A lot of the postprandial stuff, I think, went over my head a bit. Uh, I, I noticed Pimander because, you know, my thing is Hermetic Magic from yeah. the Renaissance. So that's actually a magical book by, I think, Ficino, translated by Ficino from the Hermetic. A.E. is A.E. Russell, so again, the uh, Dublin Hermetic stuff. So once, once again, he has all the occult magic going through his head. It's interesting. Arthur Griffith, of course. So he's, I think he's talking to somebody who's a long way from home, still worried about um, Irish independence and all that. Um, don't know who Drumont was. Uh, I like the description of Queen Victoria as an old hag with yellow teeth. And uh, then he gets into, I think, prostitution and, and how terrible and awful all the prostitution in the bathtubs is. Mm -hmm. If I'm reading that right. Um, see, what else do we have? And then there's a beautiful description of the, I guess, a stream of consciousness memories of Paris. Mm -hmm. Him walking down a Paris street. He's on Sandy Mont Strand right now still, right? Mm -hmm. So, but he's got Paris run, going through his head. So he probably wants to be somewhere else. And I like the description of the croissants and the yellow puss. He makes everything gross. He's really good <laughs> at that, doesn't he? Um, yeah. And a cheese hollandaise. Cheese mm, hollandaise. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's about That's as much as I have. Okay. Well, let's look at just that first paragraph. His feet marched in sudden proud rhythm over the sand furrows along by the boulders of the south wall. He stared at them proudly, piled by stone mammoth skulls. Gold light on sea, on sand, on boulders. The sun is there, the slender trees, the lemon houses. So he's kind of reflecting on this golden midday light on Sandy Mountain Strand, which leads to Paris Raleigh waking, crude sunlight on her lemon streets, moist pith of farls of bread, the frog green wood, wormwood, her matin incense. 
court the heir. So lemon houses leads to lemon streets. So he's kind of remembering golden light in Dublin and golden light in Paris. I just finished reading a lot of stuff about Freud and the idea of free association and the way Joyce kind of um, integrated that into his writing. So this is a really good example of that. Same with the, the pigeon house leading to him thinking of Taxel and Patrice Egan, who's the son of the man we're going to talk about today. All right, anyway, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So one thing that jumps out in this bit here, the frog green wormwood, the moist pith of farls of bread, matin incense, these are all smells. We've talked a bit about sensory perception, and I'll circle back to this in a moment, where we talked about our ineluctable modalities. We're now kind of approaching another ineluctable modality, though it's not called out by name, the ineluctable modality of the olfactory. Because these are all smells, like I said, from Paris. Well, incidentally, like on the color code, we think of lemons as yellow, but of course they're green when they're, uh, when they grow first. Mm. Then they turn yellow. Mm. I don't know if that's significant or not. Um, could be. Mm. Uh, way to call it the color green. Again, that frog green wormwood. Green is our correspondent color in Proteus, and it's symbolic of creativity, creative production, even Irish poets, and a sense of taste. If you remember way back to Telemachus, Buck Mulligan said, The bard's nose rag, a new art color for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you? As you said, likes to keep everything gross and kind of mucusy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, green has already been called out as an art color, and Mulligan even ties it to Irish poets, which is Stephen's ambition. In Paris, it's the color of absinthe, which was the French bohemian poet's drink of choice, a circle that Stephen aspires to join. Many artists in 19th century Paris, particularly French symbolist poets like Mallarmé, Baudelaire, and uh, a lot of these other guys that Joyce slash Stephen were into, saw intoxication as very central to achieving new states of perception, of finding the far reaches of, of their mind. I, I think kind of it reminded me reading about this in the way a lot of artists in the 60s saw mm -hmm. um, various hallucinogenics right. um, as allowing them to expand their mind. Absinthe is reputa uh, reputed to have hallucinogenic qualities, but I think that is actually an urban legend. Distilling alcohol from wormwood will get you really, really stinking drunk, but I don't think it's actually a hallucinogen. A hallucinogen. Although I have seen someone very drunk on absinthe have a conversation with himself, so oh. what do I know? The other thing about intoxication, too, is that intoxication really offended the bourgeoisie, the sort of upper middle class. Therefore, it was also seen by the artistic set as the only way to transcend their conservatism. So, you know, I, again, it really reminds me of the counterculture in the 60s. Yeah. And uh, if you like French poetry from this time, uh, Baudelaire has a poem called Get Drunk, and it urges you to get drunk on both wine and poetry. And I think, or virtue, there were three things he says you can get drunk on. Anyway, one thing he's smelling in the early morning air of Paris is absinthe. Uh, another thing he's smelling is, and I should explain too, is absinthe 
is made from something called wormwood. So when he's saying frog green wormwood, he's um, referring to absinthe, if, if that was not clear. Matins, matin incense. So matins is a, a church service. It's now called the Office of Readings. I think the name Matins has kind of fallen out of fashion. It's part of the liturgy of the hours in the, the Catholic Church, which these are basically services that are held in Catholic churches at key hours of the day, but are not full masses. Matins, it comes from matin. Well, it, I think it's related to matin, which is the French word for morning. But it takes place in the very wee hours of the morning, uh, usually around 2 a.m. So I think the idea here is that you must get out of bed to attend the service so you never get a full night of sleep. It occurs, though, between compline, which is just before bed, and lauds, which is the first thing in the morning. So without getting too far in the weeds, I spent about four months in 2007 photographing at a Benedictine monastery. And for them, compline was around 8 p.m. and lauds was 5 a.m. Hmm. So sometimes Catholicism is hard. If you do it right. If you do it right, yeah. When... Stephen is talking about walking through the morning air in Paris. He's talking about like this, this lemon colored light, which would imply dawn. But Matins is so early that I think it, this makes me think he's probably like walking home in the middle of the night. And so that lemon light is maybe not the dawn light. Mm. It might be like, I don't know, light spilling out of late night flop houses or absinthe bars or something like that. Yeah. But it's late enough that you still smell the... I don't think of absinthe as being that fragrant, but you're you're smelling that kind of smell of drunken debauchery yep. in bohemian ways, and you're also smelling the as the incense of a, a very early morning church service. So it's kind of a Berkeleyan memory because it's all it's it's in the shape of remembered odors, right? Hmm. So if you remember, we talked about Berkeley very, very long ago when we were talking about the ineluctable modalities and that he said you can never truly see the world. You just see a bunch of colored shapes that you've learned to interpret as real things. Right. And this is Stephen kind of doing that in, ex, except instead of using his visual sense perception, he's using his olfactory sense. So he's stitching together an impression of the world based entirely on its smells, which I, my understanding is the sense that is most closely related to memory anyway. You can't really be, and part of that Berkeleyan idea too, is you can't really be sure of the true form of anything since you don't have a direct way of, act, of like truly seeing it Yeah. if you're relying on that middleman of your senses. So that's Stephen too. He's not really experienced the true forms of any of these. He's just connecting with it via his nose. It's indirect realism. You don't directly encounter reality. You only encounter it indirectly through the blobs in your mm -hmm. mind's eye. Yeah, and these are smell blobs too, mm. right? When you read a lot of that Berkeley and stuff, it's it's <clears throat> all about the visual, that yeah. it, the ineluctable modality of the visible. Mm -hmm. But you can create a, uh, you can imagine a version of that with any of your your five senses. I have a vivid memory of an ice cream that I ate when I was about five, six years old at the mm -hmm. bottom of our town, and I've never had ice cream like it. And I can, if I concentrate really hard, I can summon that taste mm -hmm. of that my six-year-old self into my imagination. And I asked my mother about it, and I said, "Do you remember the ice cream we used to get on the way to the beach in Arklow back in the, you know?" And she, knew, she knew exactly what I was talking mm -hmm. about, and she says, "Yes, it did taste different." So I was like, "Yay! It wasn't just my <laughs> subjective experience; it had a very strong kind of kick to it." So, do you have a smell that connects you to any particular memory? 
I'm not. Well, I guess yes. Like when I when I get packages from my parents, I mm-hmm. open the cardboard box and it, the smell of my parents' house hits me, and then you know it's almost like you're back there for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You want to know mine? What? Kerosene. Oh God, I'm you've told me instantly this. in Japan. Yeah. Because there's so many um, home heaters are are. <laughs> operate by kerosene we had a very big one for the gym in our school that was just like it looked like a jet engine that just shot a big blue flame out of the front wow but you just that that smell of kerosene is everywhere in the winter Mm. and uh i don't know that it's a nice smell but it's a smell that i like and when i smell it instantly in japan okay (laughs) let's let's move on before we start writing the book about yeah about kerosene yeah no sense memories yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. no it's just fun to to share so maybe let's just Get ahead of ourselves and Can go to Bellarmo. Yeah, Belluomo. Okay. Oh, and also you, because you're listening, you probably noticed that I changed up the opening music for this. It's a, a song by a French a 1960s French singer who I found it this week is still alive. I wasn't sure if he was still around. Named Jacques Dutronc, mm. and it's Il est cinq It's it's five o'clock, and it's it's about Paris wake, waking up at five a.m. Mm. and it, when I was writing our blog post version of this, I had that song stuck in my head constantly. And returning to this now again, I just kept thinking of that song. So please don't sue us. <laughs> we but, are small and poor. Yeah, we don't have much money. We just, we love your music. All right. Fair use. Next, next. Belluomo rises from the bed of his wife's lover's wife. The kerchiefed housewife is a stir, a saucer of acetic acid in her hand. In Rodeau's, Yvonne and Madeleine new make their tumbled beauties, shattering with gold teeth chaussons of pastry, their mouths yellowed with the pus of flan breton. Faces of Paris men go by, their well-pleased pleasers curled conquistadors. These are about the sorts of people that are early risers in, in Paris. So I, I get the impression of Stephen going home very late while other people are waking up very early. Belluomo is a... Uh, an Italian word for a handsome man or a prankster. I'm guessing in this gentleman's case, the prank here is a complex non-monogamy as he's in bed with his wife's lover's wife. Yeah, there's some swapping going on. Yeah, they, I, I like to pretend that they're they're swingers and they're just they're yeah, yeah. happily non-monogamous. Mm, it's Paris. Sure. <laughs> Lots of bello almost, maybe. The saucer of acetic acid. Um, Acetic acid is a key component in vinegar. It's used for household cleaning even nowadays. This could possibly be used to clean up the stains, both physical and moral, perhaps, of some other Belluomo. Maybe before the housewife's husband gets home. Let's see here. Rodeau's is a patisserie on the old Boulmiche, or Boulevard Saint-Michel. These two women, Yvonne and Madeleine, are there kind of uh, giving their makeup and hair a, a refresh. Dermot, you've never been a lady. No. But uh, th- if you're having a long night out, you, you uh, don't look as good at the end as you do at the start, so sometimes you have to go touch up. And I think that's what they're doing here. Shattering with gold teeth chaussons of pastry. Uh, chaussons are just bits of pastry. Their gold teeth kind of reminding us of the golden mouth Buck Mulligan on the tower. Uh, their mouths yellowed, yellowed with the pus of flambreton. A flambreton is very similar to a clafoutis, uh, sort of an eggy, 
uh, French pastry. You've had clafoutis because I made it for you. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to make any bakers out there. I'm actually getting hungry now. <laughs> yeah, this 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 will do that to you because you know it's good too because it's mm. in Paris. Although if you get too hungry, just remember the Mouan Cibet. Which one was that again? Lung stew. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So uh, this is another sense perception that Stephen's remembering. So he's moving on to the ineluctable modality of the gustatory, you could call it, which is particularly ineluctable when one is starving and can't afford food. Right? If you go out drinking, you can probably convince people to toss you a few francs for an absinthe here and there. Mm. But keep in mind, we talked about a lot in the last episode how hungry Stephen is, mm. how he... Oh, this must be torture for him. Yeah. yeah. Right? These sort of hunger and poverty are this traumatic memory, and they linger in Stephen's memory in the form of these lovely French pastries that he never Wait, got to taste. Couldn't eat them. Oh, my yeah. God. That would be awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Though I do wonder if the smell and flavor of the Mouan Civet still lingers at the back of his throat after all this time. Yeah, you wouldn't forget lung soup. In, real, in the real world, uh, Stanislaus Joyce wrote in his biography, My Brother's Keeper, of his older brother James Joyce, that James saw this Paris sojourn as a period of, quote, fasting and meditation in the desert, unquote, which is necessary to build an artist's character and ability. So basically, it's better to be down and out starving in Paris than to be safe in Ireland while living with the pressures of religion and nationalism. What do you think? Well, at least you're in Paris. You know, mm -hmm. you might bump into someone interesting. Mm -hmm. You could do in Dublin too, but I think there'd be more of them if you were in the right neighborhoods in Paris. Mm -hmm. And he's probably, sounds like he's pretty poor in both of them. Yeah. One, one way to look at this, too, is this is like the story of Daedalus and Icarus in the mm. myth. They built wax wings to fly, and Icarus flew too close to the sun. He crashed and burned mm. pretty hard. But even after this tragedy, Daedalus still had the materials left to build new wings, should he want to. Mm. So even though his first attempt was folly, he had the, the means to rebuild. Mm. Okay. Next bit, noon slumbers. Kevin Egan rolls gunpowder cigarettes through fingers smeared with printer's ink, sipping his green fairy as Patrice his white. So Kevin Egan gets name by name, not just as Mon Père, but as Kevin Egan. So who was this guy? He was based on a real man that Joyce met while in Paris in 1902 named Joseph Casey. The name Egan, I've seen some colorful interpretations of where this came from, but I think it's likely taken from Patrick Egan, who was an Irish political activist who's very active in the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the Land League, which will be relevant in a moment. So Joseph Casey slash Kevin Egan was a wild goose, which we talked about a bit in the last episode. I think last, last episode, to be frank. And he was hiding out in Paris because of his political activities with the Irish, the IRB or the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Who are they? Uh, precursors to the, well, what would ultimately become the IRA. They were an Irish paramilitary or mm -hmm. sort of military grouping. I think they had a lot of members too, like six figures. A lot of people were in them. And they wanted Irish independence. Mm -hmm. And they were, I think, would have been one of the groups, precursor groups, who may, I, my knowledge in 1916 is shameful. 
They may have been involved in 1916 or one of their follow-on groups. One of the things when you get into Irish Republican activities and nationalism is everybody splinters and changes their acronyms every few years and mm -hmm. splits and rejoins. And, oh, it's a nightmare. Yeah. So all you need to know is they're basically people fighting the British for Irish independence. Yeah. And one thing that set these guys apart from some other groups was that they were willing to use some more extreme means to get this, such as bombs and political mm -hmm. assassinations. So when we see gunpowder cigarettes, I think this is reminding Stephen of a bomb fuse. I'm thinking yeah. of like a... a, like a if you, you've probably seen this in a movie where someone uses a cigarette as a slow fuse, yep. where they light the cigarette and let it burn back until it hits the fuse so they can get away. They walk away from the explosion in slow motion, uh -huh. looking yeah. really cool. Yeah. And we'll learn about in our next episode, sorry, you have to wait two weeks, or you can just go read our, our posts on this uh, called Wild Geese on our blog at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Kevin Egan had has a past that involves a, a pretty famous bombing incident as well as a I believe an assassination so we'll get to that in that episode wild geese such as Egan living in Paris were sort of an open secret like they weren't living in hiding they were living openly although there were always sort of English detectives sniffing around for any evidence connecting to them to bombings back home when I was researching this and you can find links to this I think I will I will put a, a link to this particular story in our show notes, but all of these are linked in the, the blog post version of this, which again is called Wild Geese on our blog. Um, but Joseph Casey was named in a New York Times story in the 1880s, telling of a duel between him and an American Civil War veteran named Scully. Casey is identified by the New York Times as a Fenian. So these two men dueled with swords, and as the Times put it, Scully was wounded slightly in the neck, his sword was broken, the combatants were afterward reconciled. So, <laughs> wouldn't see that in the New York Times these days. No, I wish you could, it'd be great. <laughs> Just dual news? Yeah. <laughs> this section also mentions that he had printer's ink on his fig fingers, so both Egan and Casey worked as a typesetter for the New York Herald of Paris. Hmm. So, his... his he always had ink-stained fingers as a result. Absinthe pops up here again. He, Kevin drinking green absinthe. His son Patrice with white, which has been referred to as milk in earlier passages. Basically, if you're not a, a drinker of absinthe, um, when absinthe comes out of the bottle, it's green. And then there is this sort of fancy process. There's Without going to too much, you go to the blog post I put up a YouTube video, so you can just watch that. But um, often water and sugar is added to the absinthe, which gives it kind of an opaque, milky quality. So I think the implication here is that Kevin Egan is drinking his absinthe straight, which is pretty harsh I've done and alcohol tasting. It's foul. It's yeah. foul. Yeah. And if you go through the, you add, to add the, the water and the sugar, I like the taste. It's kind of licorice-y, which is a taste that I like, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's not as harsh. So what that's telling us is that they both drink absinthe. Patrice drinks it in the kind of gentler way, whereas Kevin Egan drinks like a committed alcoholic. Mm. So that's, I think it's like 80% alcohol. It's very high yeah. proof, yeah. And that's why I think like people thought that the wormwood was hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic no. because... You get drunk enough that you start seeing things. You get drunk very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, next passage about us gobblers fork spiced beans down their gullets on demi setier a jet of coffee steam from the burnished cauldron so this is egan and Stephen sitting in a, a cafe around lunchtime surrounded by working class frenchmen where we eat most spiced beans and usually this demi setier is I've seen interpreted as a request for coffee. So that's one of the men calling to a, a server. But a demi-setier is, is a French unit of measure that's roughly a quarter liter. So it's more likely this refers to wine than mm. coffee. On to the next. She serves me at his beck. Il est Irlandais. Hollandais? Non, fromage. Deux Irlandais. Nous, Irlande. Vous savez? Ah oui. She thought you wanted a cheese hollandaise. You're postprandial. Do you know that word? Postprandial? There was a fellow I knew once in Barcelona. Queer fellow. Used to call it postprandial. Well, slancha. So the French part there means he's Irish. And then the, the Kevin Egan's saying that. And then the waitress is saying back Dutch. Because Irlandais and Hollandais kind of sound alike. And especially if you're in a, a room full of mm. gobbling French workmen. And then he says, not cheese. Two Irish, we, Ireland. Oh, you know. Oh, yes, yes. So he's, he might be a regular here. Just be like, we're both Irish. She's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Here's your beans. So this apparently is something Joyce experienced while he was in Paris is that he was trying to explain to someone in French that he was Irish and they thought he was talking about being from Holland. And he found it really annoying because Ireland was so unknown on the continent. There's a little word here that he's kind of, Rambling on then, uh, I think Mr. Egan in his, in his cups here. But at the end, he drops in a little Irish word, which is... Slauncha. What's that mean? Cheers. Yeah, it literally means health. It's health, similar yeah. to santé yeah. in French, which people also say. All right. Yes. Uh, and uh, the Irish government wants to bring in a new healthcare system called Slauncha Care. Yeah, so, okay. Well, uh, they, they're trying to... So he's still, as we see in the next bit here, kind of holding on to his Irish identity. He's bragging to this French server that they're mm. Irish and she doesn't care. Yes. <laughs> and he, say, he says slancha instead of santé or mm -hmm. chin chin before they drink their demi of wine. All right. Um, next bit here. Around the slabbed tables, the tangle of wind breaths and grumbling gorges. His breath hangs over our sauce-stained plates, the green fairy's fang thrusting between his lips. Of Ireland, the Dalcassians, of Hope's conspiracies, of Arthur Griffith, now A.E. Pimander, good shepherd of men. So Egan, as we said, is in his cups and he's starting to reminisce about Ireland. I really like the way this is represented here by saying the green fairy's fang thrusting between his lips. So uh, as we talked about, absinthe is famously green. And so it's sometimes called the Green Fairy because of its supposedly hallucinatory qualities. So here he's he's drinking enough that he's starting to talk. And uh, in the next bit we'll read in our next episode, he starts singing too. And he's, he's really getting very nostalgic. So the things he's talking about of Ireland, okay. The Dalcassians, this, this, these were um, Brian Baru's boys. The Irish name was the Dalcash. Uh, and they overthrew the O'Neill kings in like the 11th century. But Brian Baru is still pretty well known. What, what do you know about that guy? Um, he was the Irish king who I think was killed by the Vikings. I think he beat mm -hmm. them but was killed by them in the 
Clontarf? Yep. Ten something or nine something or who the hell knows. I'm wondering about the word Dáil Cash because the Irish government's Dáil Éireann, the parliament. Mm. So I'm wondering, is that a similar root or word? Could be. I don't know. Mm. So he's basically, Brian Bruce sort of a, he's a, was a real person, but he's sort of this historic figure in, in, in Ireland. It'd be the closest thing yeah. you'd have to like a King Arthur figure. Yeah, like, yeah, everybody yeah, would yeah. love Brian Brew. He'd, say, he'd give you warm yeah. fuzzies. Mm -hmm. Not many Irish figures in history would give everybody warm fuzzies. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. Uh, Arthur Griffith. He gives everybody warm fuzzies, right? Yeah, even though he was apparently an anti-Semite. Yes, he was quite yeah. anti-Semitic. We've discussed him Disappointing, before. Disappointing, yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's a founder of... Sinn Féin. The which Irish, is? Irish political party uh, to uh, basically agitate for Irish mm -hmm. independence. Got involved in 1916 with the IRB or their successors. Now, when I said before the IRB had like a lot of members, I might have been confusing them with the ice. There was an Irish Citizens Army or whatever. But anyway, <laughs> only the, there were like lots of different splinter groups. And so Sinn Féin was one of several. And I won't go into a big history here. But after 1916, the rising, the British press called the, the people in the rising, regardless of which group they were in Sinn Féiners. Mm -hmm. And then it became an umbrella term then for yeah. all of these groups. All, I all think similar with Fenians. Yes. If you, it was like, oh, they're all just a bunch of Sinn Feiners. Yeah. So, and then Sinn Fein was sort of a unitary brand, we call it today, for a few years until after the, the war. Yeah. And then they split again. And we know that Egan was a, or is a nationalist. Arthur Griffith was also an right. Irish nationalist. So right. he's kind of admiring the Dalcassians in the past as these, these great, powerful Irish mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. Arthur Griffith, now he's kind of putting in the same category. Right. And then this next little bit here I've, is very odd. And we talked a bit at the top of the podcast about different editions. So if you have a pre-1984 edition, I believe this will not appear in the text, this is not in my personal copy, but this was restored in the Walter Gabler edition in 1984. A.E., which is A.E. Russell, we meet him in chapter 9. Piminder, Good Shepherd of Men. So Piminder is a, a book from the Corpus Hermeticum, which is a collection of writings about the legendary philosopher-magician Hermes Trismegistus. We talked about him in an episode called Pico della Mirandola-like, so I'm not going to go into that again. But A.E. Russell was the founder of the Dublin Hermetic Society. He was also actually a very, he was a figure in the Irish literary revival, not remembered as well as, as Yeats or Lady mm -hmm. Gregory or some of the others. But he was known in Dublin at the time. He was also a big agrarian reformer. So as we make our way through Ulysses, you see him um, attached with agriculture a bit too, as well as like weird occult magical things. And Piminder actually means shepherd of men. So that's where that phrase comes from. So I believe he was politically a nationalist as well. So I think that that's kind of why Stephen's dropping him in here. But beyond that, I'm, I'm not sure why this is in here. And that may have been why it was removed from earlier editions. Mr. Gabler liked it and stuck it back in. So what we're learning here is that Egan, just like Stephen, is an exile. But unlike Stephen, he is an unwilling exile. Stephen is, is chosen. He makes this big speech at the end of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man where he's going to go off and, you know, fly by the nets of Dublin society. I can't remember quotes. So yep. Egan also had to leave Ireland, but he wants to go back. He, he would happily return to Ireland and, you know, make his life there, but he can't because of his political circumstances. Stephen doesn't want to return to Ireland, but eventually, as we learned last time, he has to because of uh, his dire financial yep. straits and his mother's dire health. Next. To yoke me as his yoke fellow, our crimes are common cause. 
You're your father's son, I know the voice. His fustian shirt, sanguine-flowered, trembles its Spanish tassels at his secrets. So this first line, to yoke me as his yoke fellow, our crimes are common cause. So Stephen gets the impression that he's a bit evangelical in his uh, political views, this Kevin Egan guy. He's trying to get turn, turn Stephen into a, a more politically radical Irish nationalist, whereas Stephen is pretty politically ambivalent. It's something we've explored in, in past episodes is mm. like... Uh, Mr. Deasy calls Stephen a Fenian and other other people kind of refer to Stephen that way because he's Catholic. But really, he has really complex views. Um, he has a big speech in Portrait where he uh, he says he sees no reason to, you know, sacrifice his life for Ireland. So Stephen's a little suspicious of this Egan guy. Our crimes are common cause. So he knows if he joins up with him that you know, he's, he's going to end up in a position like Kevin Egan where yep. it's it's not fun exile anymore. Yep. He says, your, your father's son, I know the voice. This is also a nice time, I guess, for Stephen to think about father-son relationships, a constant theme in this book. Uh, so Stephen and Simon Dedalus, much like the Egans, were once consubstantial and now have grown distant. We remember Patrice back in our episode, C'est le Pigeon Joseph. Do you remember, what do you remember about Patrice? Oh, God. I don't remember. He's, he's much more oh, wait, I French. Do. Yes, he had gone sort of native. Yeah. And Ireland had become sort of a, a, a distant thing for him, mm -hmm. like less solid connection to. As you do, you know, yeah. a son of I'm an immigrant becomes I'm fairly native. sure Patrice was born in France, too. Mm, there you go. And then also he's... Pretty comfortable rolling his eyes at his dad and like saying, oh, my dad believes in God, but here's some cool blasphemous literature. But he's not really willing to confront his father directly, which I think is pretty similar to Stephen's relationship with Simon. He doesn't really like Simon Dedalus, his father, but hmm. there's no big showdown between them either. Right. Um, he just kind of uh, twists dramatically in his intellect about how they were once consubstantial and now they've grown distance. So uh, if you want to know more about consubstantiality, we've, I think, done several episodes on that. So go find those in our archive. Fustian. So this term can refer to a rough fabric that's often used for padding or stuffing due to its rough nature. I think this was originally named for like corduroy fabric, but it's kind of in that coarseness of fabric. So as a result, fustian... It's kind of an archaic word, we don't really say it much anymore, but fustian can also be applied to literature or rhetoric, and it means it's kind of overstuffed, padded out, pompous, bombastic, maybe even pretentious. So it's kind of easy to imagine that Egan's speech is just as fustian as his shirt, kind of showy and flashy with its tassels and red flowers, and he's kind of here drunk on absinthe. Um, telling, oh, you know about the good old days when Brian Baru was the king and Ireland was great and men were men. Uh, you know, he's you know, yeah, no. drunk, bombastic people. We, we've met them. We ever hear recordings of people speaking from that period. It's very, um, <laughs> very Fustian, all right. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's just the Fustianness of a, an opinionated, uh, drunk old political radical mm. who's, uh, you know, kind of fallen a bit in recent years. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm thinking like, 20 years ago when I was on the brink of being in college. But if you met people then who had been in um, political activism in the 60s, they would talk in the same way. Like, Living in the past. Yeah. yeah. Oh, was it Berkeley in 1960-whatever? Yeah. But yeah, they, they get kind of... Sorry if, if 
listener, if that's you that I'm describing. I love talking to those people, just so we're clear. All right. Uh, stay out of the weeds, Kelly. All right, next, because this has a story attached to it and a recurring character that I hope we've all grown to love. Uh, Monsieur Drummond, famous journalist. Drummond, know what he calls Queen Victoria? Old hag with the yellow teeth. Vieille ogresse with the donjon. So, Edouard Drummond was a very well-known French journalist at this time, and guess what? He was so anti-Semitic. He did not like the Jews. He helped found the Anti-Semitic League of France, and he wrote several books about the malign influence of the Jews in France. So, this guy really hated Jewish people, uh, which made him a target of our old friend, Leo Taxel. Remember that guy? Yes. If you don't, you can hear about his great hoax back in our episode, Say Le Pigeon Joseph, one of my favorite stories I've uncovered while researching for this podcast. Anyway, during the time when Taxel had recommitted to Catholicism and was pretending to be very holy, he kind of turned on Drummond as a target, and he testified before a court that Drummond had claimed that he wanted to murder all of France's Jews. Like, he really wanted to smear this guy. Taxel's testimony was thrown out, however, because he was identified as a known pornographer and therefore an unreliable source. Again, remember, he called himself the arch liar of the day. So Taxel did what he did best, and he wrote a book in 1890 that was called Edouard Drummond, A Psychological Study. I'm pretty sure he just made up everything in it. But he revealed that Drummond also hated Catholics as much as he hated Jews. So he also said he wanted all the Catholics to die, hoping that would get the attention of French people. Uh, in the end, Taxel's arguments really didn't move public opinion, and Drummond was allowed to go on being prominently anti-Semitic. He reached sort of his zenith a few years after this when he used his platform as a journalist to fan the flames of the infamous Dreyfus Affair, which was a very, very big deal in France in the late 19th century. Basically, there were false treason accusations made against this man named Alfred Dreyfus, who is a French uh, Jewish army captain, and they it destroyed this guy's life, honestly, and it it just went back and forth, back and forth, whether people thought he was guilty or not, and it kind of split along whether or not people liked Jews or not. There's a really good New Yorker article that kind of sums it up pretty well, written by Adam Gopnik, and that will be in the further reading section for this podcast, so you can find it in there. I'm I've the longest further reading section I've ever put together, so there's a lot of info in this one. Our friend Egan likes Drummond because he got in a sick burn at Queen Victoria, calling her the old hag with the yellow teeth. Joyce, I find in Ulysses, often ties uh, nationalist politics to anti-Semitism, so kind of Bloom's love for, or Bloom, not Bloom, Bloom's not anti-Semite, but Mr. Deasy, he is, uh, loves England so much, very proud of England, also very anti-Semitic. Arthur Griffith loves Ireland, kind of anti-Semitic. So it's possible, I think, this is my personal theory, that by tying Egan to Drummond here, which he didn't have to do, mm -hmm. this seems like could be extraneous, but what he's kind of telling us in the sub subtext is that, yeah, Egan might not like the Jews too much. Although, Kevin Egan might be interested in, to know that Drummond also denounced absinthe as the quote-unquote tool of the Jew, since the Pernod family, who were one of the main absinthe producers in France, were Jewish. 
So, in conclusion, that guy kind of sucks. <laughs> I don't like him. He's, he's, he's a real dirtbag. All right. Next sentence full of more people that I have to explain. Maud Gon, beautiful woman, La Patrie, Monsieur Mivois, Félix Faure, know how he died? Licentious men. So Maud Gon, who's she? Uh, Maud Gon was an Irish political activist and famous for her relationship to Yeats, although there's a lot more to her than that. Mm-hmm. I think we've spoken about it before as well. She tends to get, I, th- I think, underplayed basically as a, a supporting actor in the lives of great men, quote mm-hmm. unquote. Um, whereas if you look, actually read her, her biography objectively, she's one of these very mm-hmm. strong people in her own right. But she was a beauty and Yeats fell yeah. in love with her and she just wanted to be friends. And yeah. And Yeats went a bit incel about it. Yeah. And then married her daughter, who was like 40 years younger than her. Yeah. So, yeah, Maud Gon was the full package. She was hot, she was smart, and she was politically radical. So she often gets written, her, her like short explanatory commas often, she was William Butler Yeats's muse, but mm-hmm. she... Did a lot in her own right. We wrote a full article about her entitled Maud Gone on our blog. So please go read that because there's so much in this podcast already. But that's who she was. And there's a whole story in that too about how James Joyce kind of snubbed her when he was in Paris. Said some unkind things about her and her later husband. And maybe now Joyce's physical remains remain in Zurich because he was rude to her once when he was alive and uh, upset her son, Sean McBride. Yes, so, Sean McBride who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. If you want to know more about that, it's sort of uh, continuing into this day, um, Joycean controversy. Go read our article called Maud Gone. Monsieur Mivois is Lucien Mivois, who was one of Maud Gone's lovers. Uh, he was a right-wing politician and a married journalist. And he was another French journalist who used his platform to promote false treason accusations against Alfred Dreyfus. Didn't like the Jews so much. La Patrie was Mivoise, anti-Semitic newspaper that he founded. And author Adrian Frazier referred to Mivoise as a bizarre, a quote, bizarre, detestable, larger-than-life human monster. <laughs> So uh, give, give that man a Twitter account <laughs> right now. Maud Gon uh, took up with him because they both hated the queen. So they were united in common ca- cause against the old mm. ogre with the... It's important to share the same <laughs> hatreds. It's the secret yeah. of every successful Yeah, so they, they worked as a couple for a time. He was a father to two of her three children, Georges and Isilt. Though they never married and they eventually parted ways after decade of kind of on again off again while Yates was in the friend zone oh yeah it's it's rough they did much more scandalous things together than what we said and in this podcast if you want to know about that you got to read our blog posts it's linked in the show notes Félix Faure uh, was a French president who allegedly died during a clandestine sex capade a bit like uh, Nelson Rockefeller the late U.S. vice president yeah. allegedly so he he died um in uh in flagrante delicto i was trying to think what yes we'll go with that he yeah he he died while he was having sex allegedly fake news so this is more gossip from kevin egan that kind of highlights the licentiousness of the french 
as opposed to the heroic nature of the Irish. Ch the chastity and decency <laughs> yes. of the Irish. Yes. We would never do a thing like that. So we're going to talk a little bit more about chastity now. The Freuken Bonatutfer, uh, who rubs male nakedness in the bath at Uppsala. Mothair, she said, tous les messieurs. Not this, monsieur, I said. Most licentious custom. Bath, a most private thing. I wouldn't let my brother, not even my own brother, most lascivious thing. Green eyes, I see you. Fang, I feel. Lascivious people. So, <laughs> and Egan is rejecting a happy ending from a sw Swedish woman. Freuken is a Swedish word for like a young woman or girl. Bon atut fair, I believe, means good to do all. She <laughs> rubs male nakedness. Uh, I, yeah, she, she touches peepees in the, the bath. And she says, Mothair, I do tous les messieurs, all the misters. So her, her French grammar is a little off too, which is a, a nice touch because she's Swedish. Um, and he says, not this monsieur, I said, not this mister. And he's just, he's really kind of scandalized by this. It's just kind of him experiencing culture shock in, in France mm -hmm. or by a Swedish woman, I guess. But Ireland would be a little more, I'd say, socially conservative than this. A little. <laughs> So it represents, I think, a hiccup in Stephen's project to make Ireland more continental, right? So remember he said, Mulligan's the Hellenizer, Stephen's the continentalizer. Mm -hmm. He wants to make Ireland more like the continent. Yeah. And I think this is supposed to show like the stock Irishman here is really put off by the lasciviousness and the licentiousness of the, the continentals that he's meeting here. And that it might be difficult to convince the Irish to embrace these customs. Even this rebellious wild goose, Kevin Egan, is fairly straight-laced and conservative. Well, look, even when they got the independence in 1922, Ireland became a, a very reactionary, conservative, mm -hmm. very Catholic and theocratic country. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, when uh, Sean McBride was in charge of whatever bureau it was he was in charge of, they were asking if they should repatriate Joyce's remains, and one thing to ask was find out if he died Catholic. Yeah. So you're saying this this is not representative of, of the Irish? Oh, Egan's attitude? Yeah. Yes, very, very. Uh, oh God, yeah, wouldn't be doing any any horrible stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so it is representative. Yeah, you, you wouldn't even be looking at like your wife naked. You'd put the lights out. I'm exaggerating a bit, but mm -hmm. you know. I remember the country I grew up in. You know, I grew, born in '69, grew up in the mm. '70s. Remember the '80s very well. I haven't forgotten that. And yeah, no, that was the last hurrah of the Catholic Church, really, the '80s, before they they really kind of crapped the bed. You look back in time on the, in the '40s and '50s, mm. very very powerful. One of my mother's uh, cousins got married, and she was being beaten up by her husband. And she went to the local priest and told him about it. And his response was, "You made your bed, now you can lie in it." So this is the kind of, uh, you know, that kind of thing, will, mm -hmm. that kind of story will be quite common. And you'll have good priests as well. Hashtag not all priests, but very authoritarian. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. they, they wouldn't be allowing uh, Swedish Freukens to rub their male nakedness in the bath. No, no, not at all. And if they did, it'd give you a good confession afterwards to clean you. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, anything else you want to get in here before we finish up? Um, no, that's about right. I just I'm really hungry now, and I would really, really like, like some French pastries. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, go have a snack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks. Thanks again. Bye for now. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.